0: If you think reading is important for learning and education, you might be inclined to engage in it yourself, frequently. Well, that might be controversial for some, and to others, it might simply be a fair call. Hello, I'm Colin Klupec, and you're listening to Learning Capacity. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with neuroscience programs since 1999. If you'd like to know more about individualized language and reading programs for your child, then visit learnfasthome.com.au. And you can comment on this podcast, send your emails to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. One of the great things about producing this podcast is the many interesting people I get to talk to from around the world. Occasionally, the tables get turned and the people I meet start to ask me more questions than I ask them. Nick Kenny hosts a radio program on Sydney-based community station Northside Radio FM 99.3 called A Fair Call, which is a political commentary and current affairs talk show. He invited me to join him on the program to discuss what learning capacity is, what I thought about current developments in the education system in Australia, and why I thought reading is so important. He wasn't afraid of asking tough questions, and it made for a very enjoyable discussion. The program was recorded, and I'm pleased to add it to the growing list of interviews that make up the Learning Capacity Podcast.
1: You ever heard of the word neuroplasticity? If you're like me, you probably associate it with lumosity, those video games that are meant to... Boost Your Mental Capacity. If you have heard of it and you can't remember what it means, well, this segment's for you. I'm joined by Colin Klupik. He's gone from strength to strength in the education sector since 1998. He hosts a blog called Learn Fast. He runs a podcast called The Learning Capacity. It's available on SoundCloud. And he's spoken to some of the leading experts in education worldwide. Colin, thanks for joining us. It's a great pleasure to be here, Nick.
0: Colin, there's a number of things I'd like to cover,
1: but first, let's speak about you. What's learning capacity?
0: Well, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? Um, In education, we often talk about uh, content or what the students know or how much content they've covered from their textbooks, but we don't often talk a lot about someone's ability to actually learn, how ready is their brain to actually learn, and uh, are they ready and receptive to learn, and capacity or a person's capacity to learn is about those things. Am I actually ready to be exposed to new things? And when those new things are exposed to me, what will I do with them and how how will I react? So that's really the essence of capacity. In one sense, it's quite complicated once you look at how the brain starts to work with new things. But on another level, it's it's really quite simple. Am am I prepared to learn? And when you say prepared to learn, I mean, the, the
1: number one benchmark that we've got is just simply age. A child hits five, boom, they're ready to go.
0: Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's a uh, a fairly contentious issue, depending on what country you're in. Some countries start their children a little bit later. Some countries like to start their children a little bit earlier. And uh, if you've if you've ever been to a, an early learning centre, like a, a preschool, uh, you'll see that they've really tried very hard to include curriculums now for well, basically kids who are just being left there to be minded during the day. So, you know, you, you could be as young as 18 months to two years old and you could be faced with a curriculum um, from early learning teachers. Now, on one level, I think that sounds really great. But on another level, uh, I'm just wondering, what was I doing when I was two years old? I think mm. I was just naturally discovering the world. Mm. So... um Age is is probably one of the most hotly debated topics now, and and the thing that you'll hear about the most, I think, is the fact that we batch students, or we batch children, so we put them together based on uh, the year that they were born. Another thing that you'll hear quite commonly is uh, their date of manufacture, in other words, their birth date, Uh, and that's the common thing that makes them capable or able to learn. And people are questioning that now, you know, should I should I be placed in this particular stage just because of how old I am? What do you think the
1: alternatives are, though?
0: Well, I've worked in a system... Uh, I've worked in a school in Sydney, uh, a very uh, well-to-do private school, which introduced vertical uh, learning in its uh, tutor groups, so the, the pastoral care groups. So instead of having just... Um, you know a group of year nine students or a group of year ten students that you see a few times a week for in inverted commas uh, pastoral care, uh, which is where you look after the, the things about school that aren't necessarily covered in class. Um, they tried going to a vertical system, and that had its ups and downs. so you've got year 12 students in the same room as year seven students, but that's right. not really curric- it's not really curriculum based. Um, the alternative is to to say, well, let's put students together. Based on what we think they know or are capable of with respect to the curriculum. Now, that throws up all sorts of very, very difficult issues like scheduling, uh, timetabling is what we would call it here. How do I, first of all, how do I figure out who's at what level? And then once I've figured that out, how do I work out the schedule? And because we've been doing it the other way for the last, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years, it's almost as if the alternative is just too hard. We can't think about that. And politically
1: speaking, it's it must be difficult to, especially at a younger age, to say to a parent, "We want to benchmark your child."
0: Well, yeah, I mean that again. That throws up all sorts of uh, ideas of well, you mean you're going to test my child? You mean you're going to put my my child in front of uh, uh, standardized tests or school developed tests or uh, or your own observation and then and then well, who's developing the tests, who's marking them, and, and on what basis are we then making those professional judgments? And I can understand why parents would get a little bit um, edgy about that. It's a, once again, it's, it's a very difficult situation to try and get any sort of uh, clarity or consistency on. And, and I think, coming back to your point on what are the alternatives, I think the alternatives lie effectively outside of the what we might call the normal system. And there are some schools around the world that are attempting to do that. Okay. When, we, when you say... Um, I remember we had a
1: chat a few weeks ago. Um, if you just joined us, listener, speaking with Colin Klupik. He runs a podcast called Learning Capacity. And it, it's a very critical look at education, both here and abroad. And Colin and I were speaking a few weeks ago about the differences between the Australian education system and overseas. And you mentioned that the number of hours that... I think it was German students... Yeah, the number of hours that a German student sits in front of a teacher are significantly less than that of an Australian student, but the outcomes consistently are superior.
0: Well, that was based on the uh, on the PISA tests, um, which is the international uh, benchmark, and you know the, the the numbers in general suggest that European students are in front of teachers less frequently or for less hours. And look, again, it's hard to know exactly how that's measured, whether that's based on pure class time or um, how they measure the length of their school day. Um, right? But, but by and large, in, on an hourly perspective, they are there less. And look, I remember this from um, – I, I have German relatives. My, my heritage is German. And, and I remember when I was a kid thinking, what do you mean you turn up at school at 8 and you go home at lunchtime? that's not fair. <laughs> right? I get to school at nine and I've got to stay there till three o'clock or three thirty. And they'd sort of look at me and go, well, of course we go home for lunch. And I'm thinking, wait a second. And then, you know, some 20 or 30 years later, I'm reading this report going, oh, wow, that, must, that was true and probably still is true. Because time spent in a classroom, that's really one of
1: the main drivers in Australia for, for measuring, I guess, how effective the education system is.
0: Yeah, and again, uh, there's some work coming out, um, or increasing amounts of work coming out in terms of the uh, the actual effectiveness of an individual teacher in a school. So John Hattie released a couple of reports last year, uh, June 2015, right? Where he where he spoke, he released two papers, and I think they were designed to be read together or one immediately after the other one was called what doesn't work in education the politics of distraction and the other one is let me just have a look here what works best in education the politics of collaborative expertise right and in that paper or in that in together in those two papers he argues that it's a lot of people talk about the variance between schools like oh that's a better school than that one over there but but his case is no it's actually not that it's the variance of individual teachers within a school—that is the problem—and you know, again, that that raises a few uncomfortable questions. And uh, you would then have to go back to that data that we were just talking about, where in Europe they seem to be spending less time in front of their students, yet they seem to be scoring higher on international benchmarks. And so you'd have to say, well at least in a very broad sense there's evidence to suggest that their teachers are more effective so it sounds as though we should be benchmarking
1: the teachers as much as we are the students but to what extent are we doing that in australia
0: uh look it, it's very easy to point fingers and it's in fact that's one of the uh, one of the issues that Hattie talks about in that paper on the politics of distraction he says oh well look uh, we've got this problem. I'll tell you what, um, let's point some fingers and one of the fingers will point at the teachers. So let's fix them. Right. And uh, look, th- there's always going to be a wide range. I mean, there are good doctors and there are better doctors. Yep. Uh, there are good teachers and there are much more effective teachers. Let's right. put it that way. And to benchmark teachers, I think, is very difficult when you consider that there's an enormous variance in their experiences, in their resources, in what they have available to them in terms of how they're supported. So yes, I think that there's value in the idea of benchmarking what we think an effective teacher is, yet at the same time, I think we need to be thinking very carefully about how we provide environments for teachers to flourish in. Because if I mean, if you're on struggle street the whole time, it's you can be a really excellent teacher, but you can have a hard time of it. Right now, some people some people have more resilience, and they can they can function better in those environments. But not everyone can do that. I mean, we're, we're human beings; we're all individual and 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 different. And so, I think we need to take a really good look as to how we're managing a teacher's day what we ask them to do is 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 there any waste in their day are they doing things that just add no value right and and who's and who's asking them to do that that's the other thing well we've on a broader level
1: one thing that really struck me when we spoke a few weeks ago if you just joined us listener here with Colin Kluper he runs learning capacity a podcast available on SoundCloud we're speaking about education and one thing that you said to me, Colin, that really really struck me was a question that you were asked in terms of gauging how effective a teacher is, how effective a principal may be, and that one question that you said would have been the hypothetical question you could ask any teacher was, what books have you read in the last 12 months? Now, personally, I think that's, that's, that's an outstanding question. You know, that raises, uh, that really answers, if, if it could be answered, um, that really uh, shows you what, what you're looking for in a good teacher. You know, it goes a long way to answering some of these questions, but you told me that the reaction that you got from a lot of people, including teachers,
0: was, what's that got to do with anything? <laughs> Uh, yes, just some clarification for our listeners there. I, I was in a, uh, a, a lunchroom situation and uh, I, I I posited the question. And indeed, the the first reaction that came back was, um, why is that important? I think the exact words were. Hmm. And uh, look, it's easy to ask a controversial question. And what do you do when, when you get, get asked that? Well, you've got to have a good answer. And I said, well, look, my answer is this. Consider what we ask students to do in a day. You know, they turn up to school, they turn up to class, and one of the first things we'll ask them is, "Have you got your books today?" <laughs> yep. Um, can you turn to page twenty, please, and uh, have a look at uh, section whatever it is? Yep. Or can you open up, open up your maths books, please, and turn to chapter five? We're starting on uh, fractions today. Have you done the readings and so,
1: and so forth?
0: <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Have you done the readings or if you go to, if you go to an english class uh, I mean I was having a meeting with some people just today, some educators, and uh, the English teacher was presenting on, on a particular strategy of teaching, which was very good actually and uh, and, and quite an inspiration and uh, well, what we were looking at was texts and and I think well, given the fact that school and ed- I look education in general I mean, if you go to university, you'll be exposed to books, textbooks and reading and, and readers, you know, where they photocopy heaps of articles and they staple it together and they ask you to pay $10 and you have to go and read that for your tutorials. Yep. So reading, I think, is very, uh, sorry, very heavily embedded into education. Therefore, the question that I ask and the, and the response that I gave is, well, given the prominence of reading and books in the job that we do, wouldn't it stand to reason that you read
1: <laughs> and that's and a, that's a very fair call there and and do you think that that really highlights a cultural problem in australia? I'm not sure what you've what you found elsewhere, but if that's what you're hearing here in australia then that's that really raises some concerns
0: uh look i I think it's very, you've got to be careful when you talk about culture because it's very easy to upset people. And it's certainly not my intention to upset people. Let me give you two examples. Um, a couple of years ago, oh, gee, it's a couple of years ago now, October 2014, I was fortunate enough again to visit Germany. Um, and I was there for three weeks. Fortunately, I was uh, not there on business, so I had three weeks to just really enjoy myself. And it was towards the end of the summer. And the the Europeans and the Germans know that the winter is coming. And the winter is long and it's cold and it's wet and it's harsh. And when we were out and about walking around in the sunshine, you could really get a sense that people really, really savoured that time. There was, this, there was this sense of, I know this is going to end. And you know I'm drawing a long bow here, but I'm thinking if it's dark and cold and raining outside, well, what are you going to do? Mm. you could read a book <laughs> I mean you can look on the computer you can play with your iPad you can do all that kind of stuff as well but I wonder then if I can if I compare that with an experience that I had just last weekend on the Easter weekend here when I was down at the beach um on a bike ride I had my wife with me we we're out riding together and we stopped for a coffee looking out over the surf and I and I said to her look I wonder if this is the problem things here are so easy <laughs> and there's so much sunshine why, why would I want to sit inside reading a book I've got to come down to the beach. I want to go for a surf. I want to, you know, I just want to experience life. And look, this is a very superficial example. Well, it'll definitely explain and... Queensland. <laughs> well, you said that, not me. <laughs> go on. <laughs> but look, I think, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to upset anyone with this, but it is worth thinking. And and if you're going to say to me, or if you're going to ask the question, is it a cultural thing? Well, then you'd have to start. Looking like if you if you imagine that it perhaps was a cultural thing, then you would have to start asking questions. Well, where are the signs that it would be a cultural thing? How right. do people spend their How do people spend their time? Do you spend your time watching telly, or do you spend your time down at the beach, or do you spend your I don't know what you spend your time doing, but surely I would imagine that if if you were in an academic sphere, I mean, if you're if you're an educator, you're in the business of academics. Yep. I would expect that you would spend a little bit of your own time and not just work time, mm. but reading. And and look, I have to be very honest here. I was I was not an avid reader my whole life. That journey only started for me when I was 25 years old. And uh, prior to that, I didn't really want to have a bar of it. I didn't really see the point. But I had a bit of a, uh, a watershed moment. Um, the scales fell off my eyes and I thought, oh, wow, geez, look what I've been missing out on all these years. But tying back into what you were saying before about a teacher's capacity to be able to learn
1: themselves, uh, if they are so, if they if they're so time poor and so stressed, and they're on struggle street, as you said, perhaps there's really not that room in their lives for that personal improvement.
0: Uh, yeah, I think that's a very valid point, and I think that comes back to the point that I was trying to make about supporting teachers. If if we overload them massively then by the time you get to the end of the day i mean people who are not teachers might wonder why the day finishes at 3 and i can give you a very good answer for that when 3 o'clock comes around you're finished you're done <laughs> it's it's a very intensive day and then to ask someone to be professionally engaged after that you know that's that's a big call as well but let's not forget there are other professions out there that spend very very long hours in their jobs right i'm think i'm thinking about uh well Almost anybody these days, but I mean, the classic ones that come to mind are lawyers. Right. They spend a long, lot of time at work. Uh, doctors who are doing incredibly long shifts. Uh, our very good people in law enforcement uh, who are doing very, very long shifts. And, and, you know, I can imagine them also saying, look, at the end of my shift, I'm done. More from my discussion with Nick in a moment. You can subscribe to this podcast for free. Visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. You can listen online or you can download the app for your favorite Apple or Android device. Once again, that's soundcloud.com slash learnfast.
1: Though the, the, the example that you've used with doctors, I mean, it's, it's a requisite of their job to stay, to go to these conferences and to continuously improve their knowledge. And they have to stay completely ahead of the curve when it comes to medicine. It's, it's a legal requirement. I'm not, not sure how legal, you know, um, how much of a legal requirement is, but within their practice, uh, you know, if you fall behind in that, you're essentially useless in your industry. Whereas if we applied that to teaching, perhaps not to such a strict degree, but we could see some marked improvements.
0: Well, you'd like to think so, wouldn't you? Um, I mean, if if I go, if I go to the doctor, and and i've just had a blood test for example let's just pick something fairly fairly basic mm-hmm. you go and have a blood test and uh we're learning how to dis- uh, discover things about people increasingly as as time passes with a simple blood test you you'd want to be fairly confident that your doctor was up with that as well yep. and you know there's really only one way to do that you either listen to someone talk about it um, either by listening to a, a, an audio or watching them on a video, or you read about it. Yep. And uh, I, I think that's why, if you go, if you log into any library database and check out the journals databases, uh, and for example, uh, one which is commonly used for for education is uh, is ProQuest. Right. If you log into that and type in a particular search term for a particular topic, there will be thousands upon thousands of of articles written so there's a lot to take in but obviously there's a lot of a lot of knowledge being created so there yep. is a lot to read so you would you would hope that your doctor was pretty well up with that now the other thing is the flip side of that and and I got this uh this insight from uh, a neuroscientist that I was speaking to in America um Dr Steve Miller who said look on one level we want people to be up with it but On another level, we'd also like people to be up with it appropriately, so if something really new comes out, if a new procedure, a new medical procedure comes out, I'd like to think that my doctor's had some time to consider that and that the medical profession has done the the proper checks and balances. So you you know, it's something that needs to be carefully balanced. You can't just say, oh that's new, I'll read about that, I'll do that. There's got to be the the appropriate amount of time that's gone into making sure that it's valid.
1: I mentioned earlier the idea of neuroplasticity, and this really... F- if you have just joined us, listener, I'm talking with Colin Klupik. He runs an education podcast called The Learning Capacity. Check it out on SoundCloud. He also runs a blog called Learn Fast. He's been in the education industry since 1998. One of these podcasts, I was just listening to it before we had a chat, Colin, It's it focuses on neuroplasticity. This is the idea, correct me if I'm wrong, the brain is a lot like a muscle, and it has the potential to grow if it's engaged in the right way. It also has the potential to decay if it's not, hence Alzheimer's, dementia, and so forth. Am I on the right track with this?
0: Uh, yes, you are. And for our listeners, I'll, I'll just make this uh, disclosure right up front. I am not a neuroscientist. <laughs> <laughs> so whilst we are actually talking about brain science, uh, I am not a brain scientist. Uh, however, I, I have done a fair bit of reading in that space, from the perspective of education and learning, and uh, I have been very fortunate in my time in in doing this, to speak with uh, some very reputable neuroscientists about current learning, uh, about the brain, about its plasticity, and uh, and what the implications are for for education. So, coming back to your um, your little intro there, yes, you are on the right track. Uh, it's funny, you know, sometimes we, we might say to someone who's having a bit of a, a moment, we we might say, oh, come on, mate, grow a brain, will you? Um, the, the brain that you have is the brain that you have. But what we try to talk about more is the strengthening of connections right, within the brain. And so, yes, the brain is like a muscle. You can think of it like that in terms of, you know, you, you use it or lose it. Um, but in a slightly different way to a muscle, brains can change. So... You, your muscle, for example, the biceps in your in your arm that allow you to uh, bend and flex your arm mm-hmm. can be developed to be larger or smaller. Um, but your your biceps can't do something like learn another language, right? And so and so, uh, if your muscle is damaged, let's say a muscle in your arm is damaged, it can be fixed and it can grow back. Now again, right. I'll make another disclosure: I'm not a doctor or a medical scientist. However, we'll just keep the keep the description very simple. Your, your muscle can be fixed or it can grow back or you can even have uh, some sort of a, a prosthetic um, procedure or some sort of uh, implant or uh, you know, if you've broken a bone or something, you can have screws and things put in to get that functionality back. But brains can change and evolve in, in ways that muscles can't. So you, you're kind of on the right track there, I think, with the, with the analogy. But it's very exciting, very exciting implications for education.
1: So I guess the first thing that will come to mind for myself and for the average listener out there, Lumosity ads, but this isn't Lumosity, is it?
0: No, it's it's not. And I had the very good fortune of talking with a gentleman by the name of Peter Caraby, who is the uh, vice president for global business development for Scientific Learning Corporation. And they make the Fast for Word product, which is a brain training program, which comes out of uh, several decades of neuroscientific research. And... The comment that he made about that is that Lumosity trains you at being good at Lumosity, right. whereas the Fast for Word product trains you in the underlying cognitive functions of memory, attention, processing, and sequencing. Now, it has a specific or a particular uh, emphasis on language learning, but the underlying fundamentals of cognitive function are, are being strengthened so that you can apply yourself to other things equally as well, and how does and that? And that's the claim. That's that's the claim between the two products. And what are the main differences between the
1: two? Because I mean, Lumosity, uh, as you said, games. It's and it, it just sort of it gets you better at Lumosity, and it's really. I mean, I tried it for a month, and I thought, you know what, I, I'm really starting to question this. I looked into the research behind it. There's not a huge amount to back it up. What's uh, What does a, an effective product look like?
0: Well, that's a, a very interesting question, which has a very large answer and a very broad answer, depending on uh, who is the beneficiary of the effect uh, and what that person had before they started using that particular product. In terms of Lumosity, I'll disclose that I actually haven't used Lumosity. I've only heard people talking about it, uh, like Peter Caraby in my previous interview. Uh, And yourself. So, you having done a month of it, you've done a month more than I have. Um, However, I have had extensive experience with the Fast for Word product. And coming back to those essential cognitive skills of memory, attention, processing, and sequencing, um, we'll start with memory. Uh, You've got various types of memory. So, there's short term memory, what I did this morning, longer term memory, what I did last week or over the Easter weekend. Uh, And then there's working memory, which is how my brain starts to respond and process information when I get exposed to something new. So if you were to explain to me something new right now, my brain would have to kick in and start remembering things on the fly. And that's working memory in a very, very broad nutshell. Um, And again, a lot of the things that we're talking about now need to be thought of very generally, given the fact that there is an entire world of research and science behind these things. But, But as an introductory discussion, I think this is okay. Now, attention being the next one is, someone uh, explained this to me in a beautiful way. Um, that person's name is Devon Barnes, and she runs a speech pathology clinic in Linfield in Sydney. And she said to me, if you're not attending, you're not learning. Now, when it comes to attention, we often think about a classroom where you might sort of point your finger at some student and say, hey, Johnny, pay attention. Right. Or, or or listen up listen to this you know you you need to pay attention to this but the way devon described it was just so subtle and so nice it was if you're not attending to something you can't learn about that something so if you're not focusing your energy and your resources on that one thing if you're not attending to that issue then you can't focus and learn about it another way that was that it was described to me by uh, Dr Steve Miller who I just talked about Uh, Was the spotlight of your brain. So if you if you can turn the spotlight of your brain onto something, and everything else sort of fades into blackness, that allows you to attend or develop your attention. And processing is the speed at which you can deal with this new information. And sequencing is, as the name or as the word would suggest, making sure that you get all those things in the right order. So an effective program for neuroplastic change is something that is going to address those four key elements. Now, as I said before, it depends on why you need to have this experience of neuroplasticity. Are you trying to learn a new language? Uh, Are you recovering from a stroke? Uh, Do you have a problem in working with words? So we, we might think of dyslexia, or do you have trouble trying to understand what people are saying when they're talking to you so there could be an auditory processing delay or disorder there there might be something wrong like you might be able to hear so your hearing acuity might be right on right you could hear a pin drop you could hear a pin drop in the room for example but if someone says something to you it just takes a little bit longer for you to be able to figure out what that was
1: well let's so, so let's start an, with just an example there that you raised Colin um in terms of personal improvement, a um, picture your average Joe, uh, you know, thirty-one years of age, receding hairline, great voice for radio, and he's studying Spanish, and he knows <laughs> that the fact that uh, in the past he has studied Italian at school and lost my. Now the, the the concept of attending that you are speaking about this is really important. When I I hear people speaking about learning languages, if you don't maintain what you've learned, you're going to lose that, plus the momentum you've built, in terms of memory and focus and concentration. And I guess we'll, we'll use learning a language as an example. What would be uh, an ideal
0: way of improving your skill set? Well, being a speaker of two languages myself, I can give you uh, some pretty good advice on that one. Uh, talk to people who speak the language well, and talk to them often. Right, right. <laughs> That's. That's the simplest way. And even if you have to make a little badge for yourself and stick it on your shirt saying, please correct me all the time. Right. And then, and then be open to that correction. Effectively, what you're doing is you're actually using, and this is actually very interesting. Effectively, what you're doing is a very basic application of one of the principles of neuroscience where if you need to train your brain to do something, it needs to be intensive right. and it needs to be regular. So you can't just have that conversation every couple of weeks or once a week for a couple of weeks and then once a month for a couple of months. You, you can't do that. It needs to be regular right. and it needs to be intensive and it needs to be challenging. Now, the other side of it is that when you are in that situation, coming back to the principles of neuroscience, you also need to have an appropriate reward so that the reward center of your brain gets triggered when you get something right. So, um, if you're learning Spanish, uh, then uh, y- you might go out with that special friend who's uh, helping you learn the language, and then that friend might say, you know what, Nick, I think you've done really well today, let's go and have some paella. And you might think, oh, fantastic, success means good food. Right. And uh, whilst that sounds simplistic on one level, I mean, it's, it's kind of nice, it's a very a very simple uh, but tangible way of experiencing some some kind of simple reward. So, intensity regularity, and then reward. Now, uh, good neuroscience programs will work on that basis, and the Fast for Word programs, which I mentioned earlier, do actually do that very well. So learners do get presented with rewards along the way, and then I've uh, also heard of parents who then incentivize their children to go through that by saying, look, if you finish this particular group of programs... Maybe we'll buy you something special or so, something like that. I mean, my son does the program, and I've said, "Look, once you go through the levels, and you know, you get you, you earn your little stars. Um, well, every every time you pass one of those little uh, programs, I'll buy you some Lego." And so he o- already gets excited about that. So then he comes up to me and says, "Can we can we do the program today?" So there's in- incentive and motivation built into it as well.
1: So that's not so much bribing someone as you know that that trick is really older than the hills. Parents tried it on me of course but uh even for yourself if you achieve something go out reward yourself anchor the experience
0: yeah i think i think um sometimes we we think of about learning things from such a a school based or a university based perspective where it's really just about sitting through someone's curriculum and then passing exams yep or um, making sure that we get all the assignments in on time and then we get, we get a mark on a piece of paper yep. and then we might get a degree that we hang on the wall. It's, I mean, there's a sense of satisfaction in that. Uh, but to get these little tangible rewards makes things very personal and it's also a lot more immediate. I mean, for you to get a reward when you're doing a university subject, it's going to take you, let's say you're doing a 12-week semester the first assessment task might be due in week four or week five. Um, that task might come back to you in week six. So by the time you've started the, the course, it's going to take you six weeks to get any sort of reward. Right. And then if you didn't do so, if you didn't do so well in that particular paper that you had to write or submit, then you're going to feel a bit flat, maybe. And then you've got to wait another four weeks or five weeks before you get your next paper to get your next chance of having a reward. So it's it's a very drawn out process which is why I like the idea of trying to learn Spanish with a good friend who can speak Spanish really well and then going out for some paella afterwards if you get 10 sentences correct in a row. It's definitely um, definitely a different way of looking at it. But,
1: mate, um, look, I'm going to have to wrap things up. It's... um it's been an absolute pleasure. This is fascinating. And uh, one reason I'm going to have to wrap things up is I've actually got a uni assignment that's well overdue.
0: Well, how about that?
1: <laughs> and I haven't done my Spanish for the day either. So, um, Colin Klupik runs a, an education podcast called The Learning Capacity. You can find it on SoundCloud. And correct me if I'm wrong, that's SoundCloud slash learnfast. Yes, yeah, soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Yep, and your blog is uh, learnfast.
0: Uh, no, you'll have to go to learnfasthome.com.au.
1: learnfasthome.com.au. Colin, it's been an absolute pleasure and I'd love to catch up again soon.
0: Yeah, it's been a great pleasure as well. Thank you very much, uh, Nick, for having me on the program. Take care, mate. You've been listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to know more about individualized language and reading programs for your child, or the Fast for Word programs, or the Cogmed Working Memory programs, then visit learnfasthome.com.au. And remember, we'd love to hear your feedback. Send your emails to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.